0: So this morning, uh, I want to, this morning we're going to talk about division um, as it pertains to life in the church, right? So this letter of 1 Corinthians uh, is this ancient letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church. um, A church that existed in a city called Corinth, which is why we call it the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, because we have in the Bible, we actually have two letters uh, that he wrote. There was other correspondence, incidentally, there was other correspondence that went back and forth between Paul um, and the Corinthian church that's not part of the biblical canon, but, uh, but this letter is, as well as Second Corinthians. And so uh, in this letter, Paul addresses an, a, a variety of things, and the very first thing that we encounter as a problem in the messy church of Corinth is the problem of division, and so the question is, well, why is church division um, such a problem? First of all, what is it? What is church division? And then why is it such a problem? Um, why is it the first thing that Paul goes after? Uh, in fact, if you were to break up the letter of 1 Corinthians into sections, you'll find the, four, the first four chapters of this letter are actually kind of committed to the theme of uh, division and the spiritual immaturity that is reflected in the divisive character uh, of that particular church. So the fact that Paul leads with this problem, I think, reveals to us its importance. Uh, That is, the church is going to flounder if it is marked by and defined by its divisiveness. Right? If church that's divided, it's going to flounder. It's not going to actually be what it ought to be and accomplish what. It has been commissioned to accomplish. Not only will the church destroy itself if it's divided, but division in the church also destroys its witness to the world. Right? Like, how how wonderful um, is it for the world, for those outside the church, to hear about the infightings and division? Um, the dirty laundry, as it were, of, you know, some particular church. Like, how is that kind of reputation supposed to attract people to come and find out what's going on and whether or not they should be a part of it? No, they're going to always stand at arm's length if the church has a reputation of being the kind of place that is marked by it's divisiveness. Like who wants to, I, I get that sometimes you find yourself in an environment that is divided and it may be a situation where it's hard to get out. Like you might be, you might work at a, some particular place and it's just, it's there's just so much divisiveness there and it's very, very uncomfortable for you, but it's also your job. And so at least at present, you kind of have to stay there, right? And so you can figure out some other, course of action. Um, so it's one thing to find yourself in a divided group of people. But who's going to be attracted to it? <laughs> it, it like, who's going who's to go in and just and, and experience um, us, right? Like this group of people and get the feeling, get the sentiment that's like, they don't like each other in there. You know, I, like, I went to that church and, and, I mean, just the predominant feeling I got was they don't really like each other. Like, who's going who's gonna to be attracted to that? Who's going who's gonna to fill out Sharon's stupid communication card, right? <laughs> and ask for us to send them emails. See, the church is supposed to be the incarnation of God's love in this world. That's what the church is supposed to be. I mean, you know, Jesus isn't walking around in bodily form right now. At present day, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, he is not walking to and fro in the roads and the neighborhoods of Sanford, Maine. Hello? And so, how is it that a person who doesn't know Jesus will experience Jesus? How will they be introduced to him, if not but for the church that Jesus established to do just that very thing? And how is the church to do that? Well, the church does it as it incarnates the love of an all-loving God to this world. Our calling to incarnate the love of Christ is betrayed if we are too absorbed by our own infighting and division. Now, the the church could be a force for love and do practically everything exactly as it ought to, and there will still be an element in the world that is going to hate it. Right like there have been times in the course of the church's history where the church was exactly what it ought to be. And yet there was still an element in the world that despised it. Because well there's always going to be that element of diabolical wickedness that's going to hate and destroy everything that's good. Like that's that's already there. And then <laughs> And then the church sometimes has a habit of exacerbating the natural enmity that it's already going to have with the world because instead of being a force for love and a force for good, it instead becomes its own worst enemy. And today, um, I don't know if I should say especially, but maybe especially today, certainly, especially for our present-day culture and environment, a church that is marked and riddled by its divisiveness, by a lack of love, by an unwillingness to embrace the outsider, you know, the world is not going to have it. If we are going to be a, a group of people who are inauthentic who are imposters, who are purporting some form of religion but do not yet have the accompanying power of God being demonstrated in and through our lives, which are being lived in God's spirit and power, the world is not going to have it. They're just going to say, no, thank you. Our text this morning, um, we begin in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them and you can keep them open to this passage. This is where we will uh, be for the rest of our time uh, together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says this. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, all of you, agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul. Or one of you says, I belong to Apollos. Or one of you says, I belong to Cephas. Another name for the Apostle Peter. Or one of you says, I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. I want to start with verses 11 and 12, uh, which describe the problem. Paul gives the uh, the example of what exactly it is that he's talking about and addressing. And then, um, and then we'll back up to verse 10, which contains Paul's appeal of how we deal with the problem. So the Corinthians, they had a reputation for rivalry, right? Paul says, it has been reported to me about you that there's rivalry among you. Like, I've heard the, I've heard the news. I got the report. And I've heard that within your church body, there's what Paul describes here as this rivalry. And then he gives the examples. Again, one of you says, I belong to Paul. One says, I belong to Apollos. One says, I belong to Cephas. One says, I belong to Christ. The key word here in the examples Paul uses is the word I. <laughs> right? Right? I belong to Paul. As as we consider what was going on in the congregation, Corinth, there are a whole bunch of big eyes walking around that were professing some particular allegiance that was in some way, demonstrating their superiority over others. The problem was that there was something going on there that elevated individuality over and against the whole body. Um, We read a passage like this, we might not see the direct parallel for how this may apply to us, right? Because there's nobody here probably um, walking around, carrying the banner, Say, well, I go to the school of Paul, right? And you're like holding it up so that the person over on the other side of the auditorium is, who's holding up their banner says, I go to the school of Apollos, right? You want them to see your banner and just how different you are. Um, but the problem was expressed in this elevation of uh, one's individuality over and against the whole body. Notice that in this example set that Paul uses, he even, he ends it with uh, that there's one who says, oh, I belong to Christ. It, it, I don't know about you, but you might think that, well, that's that sounds like the right one, <laughs> right? Like if, one guy saying I belong to Paul, another guy saying I belong to Apollos, and then another one saying I belong to Christ. It's like, oh, I vote for that guy, right? It sounds like he gets it or she gets it. But the fact that that's in the list here, I think, again, is just it's demonstrating the individuality of the expression, right? It's um, if you can imagine uh, if if you were to get some of these people in the same room and you have one that um, is claiming something. Um, related to how they're superior over and against others because they, you know, uh, in Paul's words here, maybe, you know, I was baptized by Paul or I was brought into the faith by Paul. And so my faith, you know, faith that started with the great apostle Paul, like that, that puts me in a superior position over you lesser likes, you know, that came into the faith, in some other way, like you don't even know Paul. I, I know Paul, right? And so there's a kind of um, name dropping, a kind of um, sort of association with, you know, the famed and heralded Apostle Paul, right? And, and so you've got that person and you have this other person that says, I don't follow any man, I follow Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. And, 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 and again, it's, it's not that the idea of following Jesus is wrong, any more that following Paul, and Paul's example, as he follows Jesus, is wrong. The idea is that there is this, there's this individual appeal to one's superiority against everybody else. Does that make sense? Right? Like that, that there, was a, there was an element of pride, even with the uh, with the thought, you know, I don't follow any man. I just follow Jesus. And so the problem is individuality. Now, um, you're going to have really in in any assortment of people uh, that are <coughs> excuse me that are collected together. You're going to have you're going to have groups that form. Sometimes um, a more pejorative way of describing those groups may be, you know, something like cliques, um, you know, people that have a, a more special bond, you know, within their kind of formed community uh, um, and maybe have a healthy, an, an unhealthy perspective of those outside of, you know, whoever happens to be um, in that circle. Uh, C.S. Lewis says something very interesting about the idea of groups and like what it does, you know, as it's forming us spiritually. Um, And that is that, you know, every person who identifies more with their group or um, their clique or, you know, whatever you want to call it, more than the whole is always going to consider everyone else an outsider, There will always be a sense that those who are in the group are better than, are superior to those who are outside the group. And it doesn't matter what it is that makes the group. It it doesn't matter um, what that group looks like, right? That group might uh, might be a bunch of people wearing expensive suits and driving fancy cars, right? To have some particular kind of identification that, has them feeling more superior to others who are not like them. But it can also be three guys who spend all day and all night gaming in the basement, jacked up on dope, who haven't showered in a week. Right? they, they Within the context of their group, think that they are something better than those who are outside of the group. And so the real problem comes down, it boils down to this idea of individuality, which is an especially pressing challenge for us today who live in a world that extols the virtue of individual expression over and above practically everything else. There was a sense of uh, individual spiritual elitism that honored the self first, right? So this is what happens um, when you give into the temptation to individualize yourself as being a more important expression than the whole, Um this elitism, it honors the self first, right? So it puts one's self before everyone else. And then it puts those who are most similar to that self second, right? The people that are like I am, who might look like me or act like me, talk like me, might have the same interests, same beliefs, same values, whatever. But then the whole almost never... <laughs> Right? like the whole is not important. I mean you 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 look at you look at anything. I mean you you can you can certainly apply this to the life of a church, but you can apply this anywhere. Like this happens in our homes sometimes. How many of you have ever had somebody in your home who was not on the same page as everybody else in the home? Yeah, right? This is why we don't go out to eat together anymore as a family. Right, Renee? We got three kids. I promise you, no matter what restaurant we pick, somebody will be unhappy. And it's not me or her. It's one of them. Right? What's happening there? Like when that when you have that one person that's just like Moving against and away from, like, the direction that everybody else is, it's, there's this, they're putting themselves first. They're putting what are their interests, what most aligns, what is most parallel to their desires, their interests, second. And no concern whatsoever for the whole in the context of the family. Like, no concern for the well-being of the family. In the church, you have um, uh, these... these individual consumers of what a church may be offering that are looking out for their interests to be satisfied, who rally together themselves, those who are most like them, and that have very, very little concern for the body as a whole. This is what paul's de- dealing with this is what paul's looking at It's not so much like we get the picture you know that there's just it was this very neat and clean kind of like everybody marched into church on Sunday morning, you know, and there was four colored shirts right and you sat with all the people that was we- that were wearing your shirt right and you had your group and then there was that group and this group and like that's kind of the picture that sometimes I think gets painted when we read this, but it's it's it really got down to at the at, at the the end of the day it got down to like just the the emphasis on the individuality of each person not that not that our individuality is unimportant it's not unimportant that our our worth as an individual is is to be negated no 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 it's just that it was it was elevated over and against and to the exclusion of the whole body uh, if, if, if we were talking about, you know, some sports team, right? Like uh, uh, we're in football season, right? And of course, at any given time on the field, you have 11 guys on offense, 11 guys on defense, right? And they are, they are responsible for their individual parts within the scheme of a play. But it all moves together in conjunction with what others are doing. Right so there's an element of and some of you know the famous saying of coach Bill Belichick do your job right which means you as an individual you do your job but your job is not done and your job is not important over and against the job of all the other 10 guys who are on the field at exactly the same time It's all moving together In a properly functioning church members of that body have a deeper loyalty to one another than they do to their own individual selves. See, the problem with individuality according to Paul here is that it treated Jesus as if he were broken up into these individual parts, right? He asks, is Christ divided? Meaning like is Jesus himself like broken into these Parts and pieces; these fragments that are dispersed among various factions or groups. And there's a moral element to the question he's asking when he asks, "Is Christ divided?" Like Paul saying, "Is are you, are you telling me it, that are you telling me that Jesus is not?" who he said he was, or that, that Jesus is something other than what he claimed to be? Remember, Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And Paul's saying, are you saying that like, when Jesus said that, that he's actually, in fact, a kingdom that is divided against itself? Back to verse 10, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. So let's talk about Paul's appeal for unity and to eradicate the divisiveness in the church. First of all, it's very important. He addresses, think think about his audience here. The audience that he's appealing to are brothers and sisters. He calls them, this church, he calls them brothers and sisters to stress the nature of their bond as a church. Look around. I, I, I get, you know, a lot of time, we spend so much time looking forward, right? Like we come from our cars and we walk in and in here and everything is this way and then we kind of walk back out the other way and um you know some of you are able to slip in and out of church without having so much as a conversation with another human being that's not related to you and so we sometimes again we like we get the idea that it's like you know we have come to church as customers where what paul wants us to recognize is that if we would look around and into the faces of one another we are in fact brothers and sisters That's how he describes our relationship to one another. And that's his appeal. His appeal comes from the very foundation that we have a bond as the church of Christ. Paul himself appeals as a sibling, right? He's calling them brothers and sisters, which means he's identifying himself as their brother. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul, and and here in this appeal, there's a degree to which he's expressing like the equal plane that he is on with everybody else, all these other believers, that regardless of the fact that there's a diversity among the people that are part of the church, he relates to and wants us to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. And then here's what he says. I want you to, all of you, agree in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. So Paul's admonishment here comes in the form of three statements. One positive, one negative, and then another positive one. Right? The first two here. All of you agree in what you say that there be no divisions among you. This describes the exact opposite of the factions that were created by the cliques and the exclusive groupings or even the fractioning of the individual component parts. Now, when you read something like this, I don't know about you, but I think it's probably pretty easy to question, is it really possible in our complex world to have no divisions? I mean, I, I, like, I'm, I'm with you. I know, like, again, even in your house, you just take a handful of people, right? And you're gonna have the potential for divided thoughts and minds and intents and like all these things, right? Like, again, we experience that even in our homes where you'd expect the most intimate of relationships to exist. Is it possible, I mean, look at all the people in here. Is it possible to live up to what Paul is asking For us to have no division, I think it's very important for us to note that the differences that Paul was addressing that led to the individuality that became the problem of the divisiveness of the church it didn't come from a disagreement about essential doctrine or essential matters of Christian living. Paul never teaches. This is very important, right? Because I get, like, we live in a very pluralistic world that in a lot of ways would... Would want for everybody to just sort of conform to a very kind of nebulous and undefined, um, and certainly not, you know, uh, you know, some kind of like truth claim or something like that that might oppose what are the thoughts, feelings, or truth claims of others. Listen, Paul never teaches that people can be united even against differences of essential belief. That's not what Paul's looking for. It's not like Paul's saying to the church, "You know, listen, I know there's a group of you that believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I understand that there's also another group, sorry that put you guys in this group, but I know there's this other group of you that deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And what I, want, what I need you to do is I, got, I need you guys to find some common ground and come together and unite. Paul never ever would do something like that, because of the essentialness of the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. Like that is a dividing factor between. In fact, what Paul would, like the reason why Paul is not talking about matters of essential doctrine and essential practice is because for those that would deny something that falls under the category of essential doctrine, Paul would just simply regard that person as an unbeliever. You deny the resurrection, well, you're an unbeliever. You're not actually, you're not part of the church. Like, going to church doesn't make you part of the church. Sitting in a church doesn't make you part of the church. What makes you part of the church is the surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior and a loyalty and fidelity, not only to Christ, but also to his body. And and with that comes the essential doctrine and practices of the Christian faith. So Paul's not, like, he's not looking for us to bring together um, untenable belief systems that can't actually live and coexist with one another and unite them under the framework of a church. He's not asking for that. Like, that's not what's going on here. Again, it's not that the Corinthian believers were, um, had these, just like these massive, you know, at least as it pertains to this passage, like this massive drift away from. um, And that like somehow that drift away from was just, it was okay. Like, go ahead and leave that, but like keep it under the umbrella of the church. And so when we're asking the question, well, is it possible to actually be united? I think it gives us a little hope that yes, we actually can be. If we're if if we're starting with and if we're actually talking about the church, the what is the real church? Within that, when we are now talking about those who are united in faith and belief. We recognize that there is also a diversity and a nuance in the way in which our lives are expressed and our experiences that we have, um, some of the values maybe even that we hold that may be different from. And Paul, like Paul, will later on in this letter, he'll actually address some of these matters of living that are um, that are that are creating divisiveness, but that need not to. And, and so what we understand is that when again when we're talking about the church. It, we have a group of people who may not all be singing the same note, but we all need to be singing from the same page. These Bible commentators, Plummer and Robertson, differentiate between unison and harmony. You know, unison is when everybody sings exactly the same note. And if you listen to a song being sung in unison, you'll find that it's not nearly as full and beautiful when everybody is singing exactly the same note for the duration of a song compared with the harmony that various lines bring into the song that give it a, the music a fuller, right? You imagine all four or five of our singers here are singing exactly the same note and Caleb's on the piano banging the key that they're singing, Right, and and Josh is over here uh, hitting the note on the guitar. It's exactly the same note, and, um, and Kelsey was playing bass today, and so she's she's there beating, you know, two or three octaves lower, whatever it is, the exact same note. Also, and then, and you know, John's doing whatever John's doing. I don't know, but you can imagine, like, what would that sound like? That would sound awful, it, boring, right? But what makes it beautiful? What makes it beautiful, right? It's the, it's the, it's the chord that's being strong along with, you know, uh, melody lines and harmony lines that are being sung and played, right? That gives the music its beauty. And same goes with the church. Like, we all, all have to say exactly the same no in unison, but we all have to be on the same page, right? Like, that's really important. Because um, the same problem comes if, uh, if, if, you know, Caleb's doing song number one, Danielle's doing song number two, right? And, and one of them's singing harmony and one of them singing melody, but they're on different parts. Like, that's, that's a train wreck, right? That's just noise. And so Paul says, that my desire is that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction, right? And so... What he's doing, he looks at a church that is divided, and he has a remedy for it. He says, you need to restore your unity. You need to, you need to fix the problem of your divisiveness. This word united is, um, in medical terms, something like resetting a bone that has been broken or dislocated, um, or in the, form, uh, in the context of relationships, of mending broken relationships. Right? So so there is this like key idea that where there have been factions or disunity, there's a call to repair it. There's a call to taking on a different form of thinking about, of seeing yourself as an individual who is a part of the whole. How many of you are sick and tired of um, Shana? I'm sorry, that was an awkward pause. Uh, <laughs> we'll fix that on the recording. Uh, how many of you are sick and tired of Shana like getting up here telling you you need to be part of a small group, right? Yeah, me too, all right? How many of you are sick and tired of Sharon's emails telling you you know hey there's here's something to do and um, you know, here's some opportunity. I don't know if you notice, but sometimes she even puts my name at the bottom of it, makes it look like it's coming from me, right? <laughs> How many of you are tired of that? But why do we do those things? Well, because we understand that there's like there's there's value, there's importance in those. Like, like we're gonna keep encouraging people to do. And to be more than just simple casual attenders from time to time in a church service because that's not actually contributing to the body of the church, right We are the body of the church as we get into and um, into fellowship into the support of, like, get into the business and the affairs of one another. And Paul says, I want you to be united with the same understanding, the same conviction. So how are we doing? Like, um, let's let's maybe just do a little assessment of, like, how are we doing here at Curtis Lake, right? We're not the church at Corinth. We're the church at Curtis Lake. Um, And let me just close with three thoughts that I think need to... um, I hope will resonate with us this morning. I think for a long time, um, you know, our organization here, you know, this church, um, we've almost been more of you know something like a collection of free agents who are affiliated with the organization instead of being a whole body, one single whole body that is moving in harmony and rhythm. In Paul's words. That is united with the same understanding and the same conviction. The, the vision that Jesus seemed to have for the church, and the vision that seems to come out of uh, the narrative of the book of Acts that talks about the, the birth and the growth of the early church, it, it loathes a free agent kind of spirituality. Right? Like it just doesn't seem to have any real place for people living spiritually, or living spiritual lives separated from and apart from the community of other people. And so what we need is, like, we need to understand that there's to be no free agents. Like, we are not that. We ought not to be that. I need to not be that. I, this might sound harsh, but like, I don't want to hear about how spiritual a person is or how well a person is doing spiritually without also hearing how they're contributing to and considering themselves to be one member joined to other members of the body of Christ. I'm not saying that has to be here, but it ought to be somewhere like if the idea that like free agent spirituality ought not be the thing or is not what Jesus envisioned for those who would follow after him it is not what we see in the pattern of the early church then let's get away from the idea that we are doing really really well spiritually if that spiritual growth and development is not happening in tandem with our involvement in a spiritual community with other people. So no free agents. Now, I know there's an objection here, and that is that there's, you know, religious institutions are inherently corrupt and often abusive, right? Like, that's the idea. Once you start talking about an institutionalized form of religion, now you're talking about you're talking about a system that gets set up, you know, to grant people power over other people. And so there's just inherent corruption with that. Oftentimes, um, those kinds of faith communities can be very abusive. Perhaps you've been on the bad side of something like that. Certainly that does go on. And so the question would be, well, why should anyone, never mind everyone, who is following Jesus be expected to pledge some particular loyalty to a religious institution? Like, why can't they just live out a pure faith, a private faith, instead of dealing with the mess and the problem of religion? That's a really good question. And I would just say, what we are not talking about is that we are to commit ourselves to an institution. Rather, we are to commit ourselves to the body of Christ. That's what we're called to do. I I, I am not asking you for the sake of the sign that is out there on Westview Drive that says Curtis Lake Church to make yourself a more involved or higher contributor to the organization that is Curtis Lake Church. I'm not talking about you growing your loyalty and commitment to an institution. But rather, what I want for you to do, what I want for you to consider, are the bodies who are currently sitting in these seats, along with the bodies that will be sitting in these seats in just a few moments, right? And those that are a part of this body of Christ. I want you to think about the people, right, the body of Christ, and not the institution. And I would just say this, like if if the mess of your life isn't intertwined with the mess of another person's life and on a trajectory toward a deeper affection for and a devotion to Jesus as Lord, I don't think you're living the life of Christian community that Jesus envisioned for us. I'm, I'm I'm not saying you're wicked and bad and awful and like, you know, God hates you. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that because I get it. I, so many of us have had such bad experiences with the church or we have been so run down by the church, right? Like the idea of the institution of the church is just very, very hard for us to get over. And so if that's you, I get it. I understand it. I have had that. I have felt that. I know that. I'm not asking you, I'm not asking you to to somehow figure out how to just to fix and get over the negative experiences that you've had with the church. All I'm concerned with right now is that you be concerned with the warm living bodies that are here right now. Because what this is, this is the body of Christ. What I need is I need you. And it like, not not like, well, I need you to come, so somebody will listen to me on Sunday morning. like it's it's more than that. I, like I need you. I need you in my life. I need you speaking into my life. I need you affecting my life. And that brings me to this idea that, like we're supposed to have a sense of dependence on and a sense of responsibility for other brothers and sisters, if we are, in fact, brothers and sisters. If I'm walking around this life without a sense of dependence on the body of Christ, and if I don't have a sense of responsibility for my part in the body of Christ, then I'm, I just I don't think I'm living the life of Christian community that Jesus envisioned for me. So I need to find that. Like I need to find out what that looks like, what that means for me. There seems to be some incongruence um, when a person claims to love Jesus, but hates his bride. (laughs) I mean, you know, like the church is called the bride of Christ, right? This thing, the church, the body of Christ, it's called the bride of Christ. That's one of the analogies that's used to describe what the church is. We are the bride of Christ. And there's there's some difficulty with having the idea, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate his bride. I know that happens in real life, right? Like, you've all had those, you know, that couple where it's like, and he is just an incredible person, but whoo, his wife, right? Or, man, I, I, you know, she just is, she is just like, she is a, like, she is God's gift to this world, but that guy that she married, right? Like, I get that happens in our, in our real lives, but there's something incongruent about this idea that I can love, have a deep love and affection for Jesus. And at the same time live with a just either dismissive um, or even hateful attitude toward his bride. And so finally, um, as we think about like what part we play, and like there'll be time for us to talk about like the, the component parts of the body of Christ, right? That we all have different parts, different places that we actually contribute to and are investing in and being part of this thing called the church. I would just say like what you and I need to do as individuals is we need to do the work instead of waiting for the work to be done for us. Again, part of the problem with the, the modern day evangelical church is the consumeristic tendencies that we have. Right? It's like, well, I go to this church because I like their music or I like um, I like their preacher or I like their kids' ministry or you know, I like this or that right and then and then as soon as like maybe some of those affections wear off and it's just like, well, I'm gonna go find another place that you know that serves me that helps me to you know, get what I want out of it. like like as if being a part of a church is figuring out which grocery store is your favorite, right and going there and being, you know, a, a consumer there. And we've got to change that. Like we've got to get out of this mindset that we are, we are people who are customers of this institution. And so I just say, you know, instead of, instead of leaving, instead of opting out of the church, you know, how about, how about like when there's, when there's an area that you'd like to see improved or get better or fall more in alignment with what you're kind of craving and desiring then like well, how about you interject yourself in such a way that it can actually grow into more of what you're hoping for? Right? Instead of jumping out and finding something else or somewhere else that'll do that for you, why why not? Why don't you interject? Like maybe, maybe we talked about calling last week. Maybe, maybe that's maybe that's an area where God is calling you to. You know, if you find yourself week after week after week after week, um Sydney's leaving the room now, so I can say this, but um, frustrated with kids' ministry, right? Like, man, I know, maybe, maybe you ought to contribute to it. You tired of the way Caleb's singing? They can come and try it, right, Caleb? Doesn't mean we'll let them, but they can come and try it. But you, know, um, you know what I mean? Like, the, um, I remember... I, uh, I was having a conversation with somebody, and, and you know, I I asked the question why you know some person uh, like didn't attend our church, and um, and it, the response was, well, I don't think I don't think this person attends because they just don't they don't feel like we do it you know enough actual good in the community or for the community. It's like, oh man, like we we're, we're we missed it. I, like if, if all the people that are interested in doing a lot of good for and in the community all decide to just like not bring that into the body of Christ and like when, we're gonna be a church that never does anything good in and for the community, right? And so we need to interject ourselves in those areas where we feel like God is calling us, where God is drawing us instead of just like, well, that place isn't doing it for me, I'm out. So do the work. Don't wait for it to be done.